All right, moving into the last segment of today, we talk about random personal finance topics, and I've started reviewing the Bible for the, the whole life insurance people called Becoming Your Own Banker by R. Nelson Nash. And I've always struggled with this concept. It's it's something, you know, I, I, a commenter said recently, like, you know, oh, you, you agree with Dave Ramsey on this topic of not liking whole life insurance. And I was thinking like, well, really, initially, I wanted to prove whole life insurance was good just because Dave said no. Like, that was my thought process. And I went on a mission to try and prove it, and I was having a hard time figuring it out. Like, there's just... There's just like so many little bits that are hard to put your finger on. And the salespeople, especially the salespeople around infinite banking and stuff are like really tricky around this because they'll do things where they'll, they'll be like, that's not tangible. It's a mindset thing. Like you don't know what the future holds. Like they'll, they'll tell you all these like non-tangible things in order to try and cover for the fact that like on paper, it doesn't look as great as they think it does. Um, but they said, I have to read this book. So one of the questions I keep asking them is what unique thing does whole life insurance give me that I can't get anywhere else that's worth the cost? Because, you know, one of the things our whole life friends never talk about is that this is this has costs to it, right? Just watched a video recently where the guy talked about like, if you had a bank that did all these things, wouldn't you want to go to that bank? Like, wouldn't you use that bank? And he's like, that bank exists as it turns out, except that it's called insurance. And he's like, if you can get over that fact, you know, you could be rich like the rest of us. I don't know if you said that last part, but um, the thing it conveniently glazed over was the cost part. Like, it just didn't talk about that at all. Like, there's an actual cost to this, not just a cost, but an opportunity cost. So, and because we're trying to focus on building that net worth number, and that's our goal, we have to know what the cost and opportunity costs are in order to measure if this is a good strategy or not. So, when I ask that question, most of the time I get back an answer that's something like, um, well, that's tax-free. Yeah, but so is my plan. My plan is tax-free. I don't pay anybody for that. Oh, you give it to your kids. Ah, so so does mine. I can give mine to my kids. I, I don't pay taxes for that. Oh, well, you know, uh, it's stable. I mean, mine's stable too. Like, it has a great history. Like, I, like I, I don't know what else to tell you. So at the end, usually what they'll say is you have to read this book. This book right here is the Bible that tells you, like, um, one of the commenters specifically was like, I went on this journey of researching this for four straight years. And once I read this book, I knew. So like I said in the last episode, there's a nugget of truth in this book. Supposedly, we just have to go and find it. But that nugget of truth is not in chapter two. I'll tell you that much for sure. <laughs> All right. So I just finished chapter two of this book and it's called the human problems. And what he attempts to do here in chapter two is he tries to break down the different you know, human problems that influence us, that mess us up for different things like finances or whatever. And he's trying to relate these human problems to the reason why people struggle with figuring out how to do this whole be your own banking thing. Uh, the first rule he talks about is what's called Parkinson's law, which is work expands to meet the time envelope allowed. And the example he gives is like, give someone a task and say, you have three days to complete it. That person will complete it late on the third day. Tell them they have 30 days to complete it. It will complete late on the 30th day. All right. I can attest as a manager, I could say that that's true. You give someone a task and oftentimes if you give them a timeline for when it has to be complete, they get it done just after that timeline. And if you squeeze the timeline down, they still get it done just after the timeline. It could be way sooner. It could be way later, depending on how you did that timeline. Uh, but like most everything so far in this book, that bit doesn't end with an actual point. 
he just makes that statement. So we, I guess we just got to take it and hope that maybe at some point he wraps around and we figure out what that means. So the next law that he covers is called Willie Sutton's law. Willie Sutton's law says wherever wealth is accumulated, someone will try and steal it. Um, and he does point out here, like, you know, it's not necessarily that someone's going to try and steal it. It's that, you know, they will try and take it through whatever means that they have available to them. Um, whether that be like, you know, providing you a product, which you pay for, or, um, and then he goes on to give the example of the IRS. The IRS is just like, we make it legal for us to come in and shave, you know, huge chunks of money off your paycheck. Um, one thing I thought was really interesting in this section that I disagree with tremendously, I have a feeling this is going to come back at some point. He, he makes the statement that when the government starts sensing a little bit of unrest, um, they'll start making exceptions to rules in order to alleviate the pressure. Like they're, the government's a pressure cooker. They're just, you know, tightening down, tightening down. And then uh, because stuff, you know, people eventually have a breaking point, they're struggling, they're stressing out. They start to relax those rules or find ways to kind of reduce them in order to make people happy. The quote goes, when taxation becomes onerous to the point where government officials sense rebellion, they always resort to exceptions to the rule. So they invented qualified pension plans, HR 10, 401k, IRAs, etc. I don't necessarily think that everything the government does as alleviating rules has to do with preventing rebellion. That just seems like an amazing, um, that just seems like amazingly reductive. Like in a lot of cases it could be, and I do believe this is the case with 401k and, and they will argue this as well, but like they need more people to invest more capital and investments means more growth in the market. And if you could find a good incentive for people to invest in the market, we could grow the market faster. And if we grow the market faster, the people who are in the market the most will receive the biggest gains from that. So a whole bunch of rich people and Wall Street got together and went to the government and said, hey, look, if you can create a plan that makes that incentivizes people to get into the market and disincentivizes them for getting out, that would be really helpful. And then things like the 401k come about. I don't think rebellion had anything to do with any of that. That just seemed like a stretch. And the only reason I mention it is I think he's going to talk about that at some point, but I, I don't really know. Like I said, a lot of this stuff is pointless. Like he just makes statements and doesn't really give conclusions to them. Um, so this was a really weird conclusion. So at the end of this section, he gets to the end and he just announces the best way to do this is through the magnificent idea of dividend paying whole life insurance. And that's it. So his argument here in this bit is that you have to avoid paying taxes, but you have to avoid paying taxes in a way the government doesn't want you to avoid paying taxes. And then he makes the claim that the best way to do that is through dividend paying whole life insurance. That all seems like a lot of logical leaps all put together. I don't personally care. Like, yeah, I don't want to be paying taxes, but what I want more than not paying taxes is greater wealth and greater um, retirement lifestyle. And so like, if you were to tell me, you know, you could have $20 million at retirement, but you have to pay the federal, you have, you have to pay the IRS like $2 million. You're like, all right, well I net 18 million. And then the alternative is you pay the IRS nothing, but we only give you a million. You're like, so I net a million. It doesn't make sense. And I noticed that this argument happens a lot in the whole life conversations where they're like paying, you know, like get out of paying taxes as like one of the top priority goals. Really the top priority goal is maximizing wealth. And sometimes that means tax avoidance, legal tax avoidance. Sometimes it doesn't. So 
this seems really reductive as well. The next bit is about the golden rule. Those who have the gold make the rules. And he talks about how capital is so important. Um, and the people that have the capital are the ones who really control everything. And he made this really loose argument. And I've heard this a few times from whole life people that when you put your money into whole life, you control it. And that's it. I mean, there's no statement. You put it in the bank, the bank controls it. You put it in whole life, whole life controls it. All right, let's play this out from an individual's perspective and ignore all the rest of the stuff for the time being. You're an individual. You go to the bank and you're like, I'm going to give you $5. I expect that $5 to be there when I come back. And they're like, okay, we can not guarantee that, but we'll do our best. And you go to the insurance company you're like, here's my $5. I expect that $5 to be there when I get back. And they're like, okay, we do a better job than the banks, but also not guaranteed, but we think we'll have it. And we go, okay. And we all walk our separate directions. And then someday I come back and get those $5 back. Like at what point in there was that any different? You put it in the bank, you put it in insurance companies, you don't own anything, but because R. Nelson Nash called this become your own bank and is arguing that somehow by treating the insurance policy as if it's a bank means that it's yours and you control it is a logical leap that I just can't wrap my brain around. doesn't make any sense at all. There's no connection there. If I'm giving my money to someone else, I'm giving it to someone else and I'm trusting that they're going to do what they say they're going to do with it. That's always the case. That's why you diversify. I mean, that's definitionally why you diversify. The next section I thought was really interesting, and it's called the arrival syndrome. Arrival syndrome is where you have done a lot of work to try and improve yourself, you know, maybe improve your intellect, improve your wealth, improve your job, whatever, and you feel like you've made it to whatever goal it is that you made it to, and so your brain just sort of then checks out. It's like, well, I've, I've completed that task, I checked it off, I'm good to go. And what he's arguing here is that with arrival syndrome, we stop thinking creatively once we think we've figured out the solutions. And I would agree with that, right? So he's he's trying to present it in a way to say that we've all arrived at the assumption that banks are the place that we put our money, which, you know, here at The Wealthy Idiots, we don't think that that's the case. You should have as least amount of cash as possible and you should invest it. And when you invest it, it goes to places who are actually doing important things with that money. Like you put it into tech stocks and you're putting your money into like Apple, Google, whatever. They're the ones taking control of the money and doing stuff with it, not the bank. So we would also say that the banks aren't great. And then his argument is that, you know, you should think more creatively past what your normal assumptions are. And I would argue that he needs to be doing the same thing right? It almost seems like a counterproductive argument to say that like, you know, you need to get past your current comfort zone and think outside the box. And then you just stop at whole life. And one of the things I've noticed in my debates with whole life people is that I'll present things to them. I'll be like, look, you could do this. You don't have to put it into whole life. Um, and they shut down. They're like, no, no. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, so you guys have a little bit of arrival syndrome on this one. And the fact that you like claiming arrival syndrome and then trying to claim something in a book just seems so counterintuitive. Like, you know, think outside the box, which means let me tell you the specific idea I've decided is the final solution. <laughs> I mean, it's a contradiction already. Uh, and the last thing he talks about is the use it or lose it concept. And he just expands on the arrival syndrome concept where he just kind of says like, you know, once we kind of arrived at what we thought, we just sort of stopped there and then it's worse. We actually start to lose, you know, a lot of information because we're no longer progressing. We go backwards, which I have no 
like he doesn't make any point on that and i don't honestly care about anything he has to say in that chapter i don't think it's useful or i you know it i don't have anything to argue with it either so so the last bit here he talks about creating the entity and he's actually getting into now creating the whole life insurance policy and he's discussing what you have to do to make sure this whole life insurance policy meets the requirements because if the whole life insurance policy doesn't meet the requirements it has one of two problems one is you're paying way too much of insurance and you're not getting any of this cash value or two it breaks the point of the government you know believing that this is actually a insurance product now and it loses a lot of its benefits so what he makes the argument for is like you have to structure this thing in a way where you can maximize the cash value part and minimize the insurance part because you don't want to get eaten up by all these costs if you imagine this thing like here's the cash value here's the insurance we want to squeeze that insurance bit to be as tight as possible because we want this and then my argument would be why couldn't i just take all that money and do that with it why do i have to do the insurance part at all and then we're back to the original question of you know the original responses which is like oh well it's got advantages that you know that are unique but then i can reproduce them so they're not unique right it's actually really easy to produce the stuff that's happening in whole life insurance not difficult at all and we can get into that at some point we can talk about it but like we, we talked about it before and i'm sure we will in here um but yeah that's just amazing to me it's almost like he he recognizes the fact that you have to like minimize the costs in order to make this work and then just ignores the fact that you can creatively think past that and just not have the costs at all like i feel like that's the that's the easy answer that's the one i would go with like if you're talking about thinking outside the box you're like well could i do this without paying all these fees and if the answer is yes maybe that i mean maybe you gotta figure out what that looks like then he talks about how all the other types of life insurance won't solve this problem because they have issues and we would also agree with that i mean whole life has issues too <laughs> and that's the end of chapter two of becoming your own banker you still can't become your own banker that's not a thing following the wealthy idiot baby steps of figuring out what your net worth is and then looking at ways to maximize that impact and whole life just drains that goal tremendously enough where it it doesn't make any sense anymore it, it does everything in reverse and i'm sure we're going to get into that so i won't talk about that anymore um but that was chapter two. I still feel like we haven't gone into any kind of real information. We haven't got any real data out of any of this stuff. We're, we keep getting these sort of like really vague sort of pointless arguments that he's making that haven't really connected. The whole thing's very bizarre. Feels very cultish. Um, and that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs>